Hello, and welcome again to another conservative historian podcast. This one entitled Joe Biden and the Potemkin Campaign. The date? September 2020. This is Bell Avis. Before I begin with the podcast, I do just want to mention that the conservative historian book, A Collected Works, will be available next month in October of 2020. This book contains columns on the history of education, politics, and culture. It has an essay on military history featuring a look at generals and admirals throughout the ages, a comprehensive essay on how to handle a financial panic, and finally, most of all, a ranking of all American presidents, yes, all 45 of them, including one whose initials are DT, through the prism of conservative ideology. That's a ranking of all American presidents through the prism of conservative ideology. Keep an eye out for that on Amazon in both a hardcover and Kindle version. And now, on to the podcast. Grigory Potemkin is one of those historical figures that seem almost too good to be believed. Though several depictions exist, most recently an HBO-produced miniseries called Catherine the Great, in this production, Potemkin is played by Jason Clark, a renowned actor, but not my first choice for Potemkin. According to our trusty Britannica.com website, Potemkin, the real Grigory Potemkin, was, quote, an able administrator, licentious, extravagant, loyal, generous, and magnanimous. He was the subject of many anecdotes, unquote. Because ink seems to be the default for most performances today, Clark's Potemkin seems more tortured than history would suggest. This figure, Potemkin, rose from an army officer to be an empress's lover and practically ran the Russian Empire for nearly two decades. Biographer Simon Seabig Montefiore, in his Catherine the Great and Potemkin, an imperial love affair, describes their relationship as containing, quote, outrageously libertine lifestyle and exuberant political triumphs, unquote. Arguably, one of the most common anecdotes involving the pair consisted of the story of the Potemkin villages. Britannica defines a Potemkin village as, quote, any pretentious facade designed to cover up a shabby or undesirable condition, unquote. The presumed goal of these villages was to demonstrate to Catherine, as she toured the Ukrainian province for her paramour, to show the furtherance of Russian colonization in these southern provinces. In other words, Potemkin was showing, look at all the progress I have made my sovereign. The issue? The villages were fake. Potemkin built them to fool his sovereign and create a false sense of progress and achievement. But here's the historical irony. Just as the Potemkin villages came to represent myth, Potemkin village's actual tale is made up. Writing for the Russian Beyond blog, Gregory Manoff notes, quote, Between 1797 and 1800, a man named Helberg, summarizing the rumors he had heard in St. Petersburg during his stay in Russia, Helberg mentioned artificial villages, bags of wheat filled with sand, vast herd of animals that were really one name herd, shown to the empress multiple times, and so on. Finally, in the 1840s, 
The legend was again repeated in Marquis de Custine's Russia in 1839, a propaganda work full of myths and inaccuracies, which became world famous, world famous within the myth, unquote. Even when poor Potemkin was not part of the plot, his name gets linked to falsities. Sergei Eisenstein used the battleship Potemkin, an actual dreadnought-class ship in the Tsarist Navy, as the titular ship for his epic 1925 Soviet-era propaganda movie. One of the most famous scenes within the Eisenstein film, Zara soldiers massacring citizens on the Odessa steps, as noted in The Independent, quote, a faceless phalanx of Tsarist Cossacks methodically advances down the steps, shooting everyone in their path. As mounted Cossacks wield their sabers without mercy, it is the archetypal slaughter of the innocent, unquote. One small issue, the massacre never happened, though many cite it today as if it were real history. Quote, Edward Schlegoff, in his scathing about the film's historical accuracy, there was no uprising in Odessa, and there was certainly no massacre on the steps. It was all dreamt up by Eisenstein, he told the Independent, unquote. Unfortunately for the memory of Potemkin, it is too late. Regardless of whether there was any truth in his fabricating villages, Potemkin's concept, anything being a term meaning a falsehood or fiction, is so embedded ever to be wholly changed. And thus, in 2020, we are seeing a Potemkin campaign. Now, the nature of politics is to bend the truth, to position, and go for impact and emotion, often over accuracy. But 2020 is not the late 1700s, and we now have tools and devices capable of discerning the fake villages from the real ones. This analysis includes understanding the statistics that dictate policy decisions from what politicians often tell us. This discernment is why the 2020 Joe Biden campaign is one of the most bizarre in American history. The campaign and Joe Biden himself are to this election season what all of the Potemkin stories are to history. Let's start with the candidate himself. I have asked anyone who cares to go to YouTube, type in, quote, Biden-Ryan debate, unquote, and watch for about uh, five minutes. Particularly, look at the two-minute, 22nd mark, where Biden seamlessly ticks off facts and figures relating to the Obama administration foreign policy. Then look at any including his recent DNC acceptance speech, any current Biden delivery. Keep in mind that during the Ryan debate of 2012, Biden had no teleprompter, no easy questions, and was up against one of the best policy wonks in a generation, and yet Biden won the debate. Today, Biden is forgetful. He's uneasy. He's unsteady. Without a teleprompter, he's nearly lost, and interestingly, his charismatic wife, Jill, accompanies him to more and more events and even stands in for him during interviews. In 2008 and 2012, when he was running for vice president, Jill Biden was an afterthought. In 2020, she is the main event. The Potemkin element, the fabrication, is that Joe Biden is running his campaign, that his mental faculties are sound, and that he is up to the job of being president of the United States. 
though America is left to ponder, his campaign managers, and certainly Dr. Wife, know the truth. His condition is not lost on his campaign managers who have kept Biden in his basement, under wraps, and with a campaign schedule that would have once been seen as laughable. But the campaign has been given the best possible excuse to perpetuate its Potemkin existence, COVID-19. Joe is beginning to win the primaries, especially with the February 29th win before the disease's mass outbreak. But with the delegates in hand, and COVID spreading its viral pestilence, posing a particular threat to the elderly, it was easy to call to put the 78-year-old Biden into his basement and only allowed highly structured campaign interactions. And for the time when Biden was allowed the freedom of expression, the campaign faced near disaster as when he, as for example, he asked whether an African-American interviewer was on cocaine or a junkie. Even his scripted acceptance speech at the Democratic National Convention was around 22 minutes. In contrast, Barack Obama's speech in 2008 was over double that. Bill Clinton's acceptance speech, all the way back in 1992, was 60 minutes. And more recently, in 2020, Donald Trump spoke for more than an hour. In fact, Donald Trump's speech might have been a little too long. Not only was Biden's the shortest speech in recent history, but it was also the fastest by a considerable margin. Again, half of that of the previous Democratic winner. With millions watching, why would he so limit his remarks? But the candidate itself is not just the only Potemkin aspect of the Biden campaign. One of the missing elements is the purpose of the campaign. Biden once claimed it was because he thought that Donald Trump was so odious he had to defeat him. He had to enter the race. But then why did Biden run for president at least three other times before that? Was George H.W. Bush so bad in 1988? And there was no Republican incumbent when Joe Biden ran in 2008. Additionally, there were plenty of others, 23 candidates or so, other Democrats running for the presidency. So why did it have to be Joe? So here's one reason put forth by Biden, or at least his campaign managers. Quote, for generations, Americans who are black, brown, Native American, immigrant, haven't always been fully included in our democracy or our economy. Unquote. This statement has undoubtedly been confirmed, and the vast majority of Americans would agree. But then, what is this prescription for this issue? If that's the reason that he is now running, that in the odiousness of Donald Trump, then so what is he going to do about it? The campaign talks about these issues, but rarely elucidates how they would solve it. Joe Biden's website has clear links to his story, his running mate, Kamala Harris, and where to donate. But finding the issues is much more difficult. In contrast, Vermont senator and socialist, Bernie Sanders' primary website contained one click to get to all of his policy platforms. And he was pretty clear about what they were. Massive tax increases, full unionization across the board for all labor, the end of carbon-based energy. It was all there. No Potemkin website, but a full-throated socialistic agenda for anyone who wanted to see it. Like his campaign, Biden's website is, is Potemkin in nature. It is a website for a presidential candidate with little in what he would actually do 
if he becomes, you know, president. Take this example from his Build Back Better, Joe Biden's Jobs and Economic Recovery Plan. Quote, mobilize American manufacturing and innovation to ensure that the future is made in America and American. Or, quote, mobilize American talent and heart to build a 21st century caregiving and education workforce, which will help ease the burden of care for working parents, especially women, unquote. Aside from a few bromides to clean energy and to reverse the tax cuts of 2017, there was almost no discernible difference between Biden's economic plan and Trump's. That's because Biden is pretending to be moderate. We'll get a little bit to, to that point later. The reality comes from sources such as The Hill and Urban Brookings. Quote, the tax proposals from former Vice President Joe Biden would raise about $4 trillion over 10 years and lead to the largest tax increases for high-income people, unquote, according to a paper released Thursday by the Urban Brookings Tax Policy Center. The bromides about mobilize American talent and heart to build 21st century caregiving, that's the Potemkin village. The real village is the massive tax increase. But is that clearly stated on the Joe Biden website? It is not. Another of the pretend difference with Trump is the COVID response. Here, uh, directly from Joe Biden's website again, are three critical items from the campaign. Number one, listen to science. Number two, ensure public health professionals inform public health decisions. And three, restore trust, transparency, common purpose, and accountability to our government. Not precisely precise or even that differentiated. In other words, again, very little difference from Trump. For all the Trump rhetoric, he has listened to Dr. Anthony Fauci, as Anthony Fauci himself has said. He has listened to Dr. Deborah Burks, as she herself has said. He has listened to Dr. Jerome Adams and Dr. Redfield, etc. Per the third bullet, Trump sometimes provides too much transparency by telling the press exactly what he is thinking. Reticence, as opposed to transparency, might be a better order in regards to Trump. And then looking at Biden's seven-point plan for covid the campaign extols drive through testing, personal protection equipment, evidence-based guidance, protecting the elderly, and limiting exposure to China. This catalog is the exact list of the current administration, only except the Biden campaign will simply do it better. The one point of differentiation comes in the following. Quote, implement mask mandates nationwide by working with governors and mayors, and by asking the American people to do what they do best, step up in a time of crisis, unquote. But wait a minute, how can it be a mandate and yet ask, quote, ask the American people? Either you will tell them to wear masks all the time, everywhere, or you do not. Even the concept of asking is a pretend to an ask. It's pretending to say that the American people would participate when it's a mandate. This concept of a pretend policy especially applies itself to Biden's response to the riots and looting emanating from the murder of George Floyd. The village looks real on the surface. Quote, there's no place for violence or destruction of property. 
peaceful protesters should be protected and arsonists and anarchists should be prosecuted and local law enforcement could do that, unquote, states Joe Biden. First, Biden called out right-wing extremists but never mentioned either Antifa or the Black Lives Matter organization. Both of these entities have been proven culpable for much of the violence and even what response the campaign did provide to the violence to the looting, to the riots, came after almost two months into the rioting, and only after polls showed a narrowing in the battleground states that will eventually decide the election. And yet, the most egregious fiction of the campaign is that concept that the campaign and the campaigner, the candidate himself, is moderate. Biden claims he has not gone full Bernie Sanders, but then calls for abolishing the filibuster. Quote, it's going to depend on how obstreperous they become, unquote, they being Republicans. Gee, you think the Republicans might oppose some of the Biden agenda? And therefore, he has basically opened the door wide for the ending of the filibuster. Because the Senate Republicans might filibuster legislation championed by a potential Biden administration, Biden said, quote, but I think you're going to just have to take a look at it, unquote. Regarding the concept of systematic racism, CBS News provided this Biden interview with Nora Roberts on June 10th. Former Vice President Joe Biden says there is, quote, absolutely, unquote, systematic racism in law enforcement, but noted the problem is much broader than just law enforcement, quote, do you believe there is systematic racism in law enforcement? O'Donnell asked Biden in the exclusive interview. Absolutely, Biden responded. But it's not just in law enforcement. It's across the board. It's in housing. It's in education. And it's in everything we do. It's real. It's genuine. It's serious. Unquote. Does a moderate claim that systematic racism infects, quote, everything we do, unquote. Assuming that Biden is the fiscal left of center guy, why would he have published a Biden-Sanders paper entitled Combating the Climate Crisis and Pursuing Environmental Justice? Now, does, does even that title sound moderate? Quote, we will set a bold national goal of achieving net zero greenhouse gas emissions for all new buildings by 2030. On the pathway to creating a 100% clean building sector. Within five years, we will incentivize tens of billions of dollars in private sector investment to retrofit 4 million buildings. 4 million, including helping local governments save money and cut pollution uh -huh, by weatherizing and upgrading energy systems in hospitals and schools, public housing, and municipal buildings. Democrats will encourage states and cities to adopt energy-efficient building codes and address barriers to energy efficiency upgrades and leverage the federal footprint to model net zero and 100% clean energy building solutions, unquote. Yet, on his website, it was difficult to find this particular document, which, by the way, runs to 110 pages. In true Potemkin style, it does say, quote, ensure the U.S. achieves a 100% clean energy economy and reaches net zero emissions no later than 
2050, unquote. The 2030 number in the Biden standards refers to a slightly different standards, but note that the website moves their goals 30 years from now, not 10, which is a pretty foreseeable future, but 30 years. Harris, Kamala Harris, the youngster on the ticket, will be 84 at that point. Biden will be 108. Sanders will be a strapping 110. The 2050 number is the fake one. 2030, the one in the Sanders-Biden document, that's the real village. And when it comes to his family, the Honest Joe concept is also a false patina. Now, to his credit, Joe Biden has gone through the single worst experience imaginable. And to my eyes, has handled that with a great deal of grace and dignity. And that is the death of one's child. And Joe has experienced this twice. That is why it is even more disconcerting to hear of the laundry list of Biden family corruption emanating from his 50 years in Washington. As National Review writer Kyle Long notes in his must-read piece on Biden entitled Wrong Way Biden, quote, when Joe was overseeing the U.S. occupation of Iraq in 2011, by sheer coincidence, one of Jimmy Biden's, Joe's brother, one of his companies secured a $1.5 billion contract to build housing there. And while Joe was overseeing the U.S. response to Russian actions in the Ukraine, a $50,000 a month gig on the board of Ukrainian gas firm Burisma happened to fall into the lucky Hunter Biden, Joe's son, into his lap, unquote. Even the Jill Biden story is made up, quote, Dizzingly enough, even the official story of how Biden met his lady love is a lie, according to somebody who really ought to know. Jill Stevenson first met Biden when she and her husband Bill worked on the politician's first Senate campaign in 1972. The latter recently said, so just to be clear, this came from Stevenson. Biden's first wife, Nelia, died later that year, and Bill Stevenson began to notice in 1974 that Jill kept making excuses to spend time with Biden or babysit his two young sons, unquote, adds Long. The official Biden story, the Potemkin story, is, is that one that they had just simply met and had coffee together, not that there was first a political connection and that the dating, or at least something, began before Jill and Bill Stevenson were divorced. The concept of using fake things to mask real ones is not exactly new in politics or history. The rule of Octavian Caesar and the Roman Empire's history might have begun on a lie about what Mark Antony actually did or did not put into his will. The difference was that the Roman people could not go onto the internet and demand a copy of the will or simply get Antony in front of many cameras to deny the charges. Given that the Romans were taught oration and rhetoric, and that he was still a vigorous 53 years old at the time of his death, he would deny those charges without a teleprompter, something that the current Democratic candidate is no longer able to do. We hope you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, and also, as always, encourage you to visit our website at www.conservativehistorian.com 
out there, you will see book reviews, you'll see columns, you'll see videos, and even more podcasts. And very soon, in just a couple of weeks, you will be able to order a copy of The Conservative Historian and Collected Works. It's must-reading. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm Bell Abbas.